I wanted to uh, get up here before you sat down <laughs> because we're going to read our passage again. Uh, next week we'll be on to a new passage, but uh, for the third time now, uh, let's stand together and read these words from Acts 2, 42 to 47. This is the word of God. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And Lord, we come to you now asking for your voice to be heard. And today we speak of the church, which you say is your bride. And Father, forgive us for the many times we have disregarded what you have loved. Uh, we have backed away from what you ran toward. Uh, we have sought selfishly to gain something from the church that you gave your life for. So Lord, reorient our minds and our hearts today to understand the church, to understand our responsibility to the church and the church's responsibility to us. We invite you here now to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we want to focus this morning on being a gathered church. And of course, it's not hard in this passage, which we've just read together, to see the emphasis. In fact, this is the primary emphasis of this passage, which I've said is a description of, of an authentic church, not just the first church, but I would argue one that's a real church. And I believe the description is here for our good so that we can learn from it. We can look ourselves uh, in this mirror of God's word and what an authentic church is and ask ourselves, is this the way we understand and practice church? Notice here, these early believers devoted themselves. This is a strong word. Uh, they, they intensely devoted, they passionately committed themselves to fellowship. This is the word we saw last week, koinonia or koinonia. It's a word that means having in common, life on life, doing life Together, And that's exactly the description we find of these believers later in these same verses. All the believers were together. Notice the emphasis again. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. What I want us to understand this morning is that if we have a concept of Christianity that really is about me and Jesus, and we don't recognize the calling that each of us as individuals have to be members of this body or this bride, that we have responsibilities to participate in and engage in and to, to be transformed through this body and this bride, if that's not our understanding of Christianity, then it's not a biblical understanding of Christianity. Because this is the way the Bible explains and teaches what it looks like to be a Christian. To be a follower of Jesus is to become part of his bride, 
to become part of this community of believers. God has always wanted a people. We talked about this earlier this year. I think it was back in the winter. God has always wanted a people for himself. That's why he created a man and a woman and said, fill the earth. He wanted to have a people. And when sin came into the world and disrupted God's plan, what did God do? God took Abraham and through Abraham established a nation, the nation of Israel, to be his own, what? Special people. And when that didn't work, those 12 tribes of Israel failed to represent God and to be faithful to God, Jesus came and chose 12 apostles. Notice the connection, 12 tribes, now 12 apostles. Notice, before Christianity even was fully established, Jesus had already chosen a community. He was going to build a people or a community out of a community. So he chose 12. And the church would be the new people of God. And so if we're saved, we've been saved into something, into this nation of God's people. So today we learn that if we're an authentic church, we are a gathering church. Uh, What I love about this passage is we see two ways in which this first church gathered. First of all, we find that they continued to meet together every day, we think it's tough to get out of bed Sunday. They, they were doing this every day after work. It's not that these people didn't have families and jobs, but they were just highly committed to the gathering of God's people. So they continued to meet together in the temple courts. That's the first way they met. And then it says that they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. What many have identified here is that there is great value in the church gathering in a large way and in the church gathering in a small way. So let's start by considering this gathering large, as we've been saying for the last number of weeks. When it says that they met every day in the temple courts, this is the temple that is being referred to. This is the second temple or Herod's temple. This is the temple that was rebuilt when the exiles came back to Israel under Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. And that small building in the center, that square building, that's the actual temple. Now, Herod was an appointed king by the Roman Empire. He wasn't actually even truly Jewish. So he was kind of what we might call a puppet king. He wasn't a true Jewish king. And he wanted to make a name for himself. And he wanted to do it by taxing the Jewish people. So how could he make a name for himself? He decided, I'm going to do that through architecture. I'm going to build huge, uh, impressive buildings. And how could he get the Jews to pay for it? Well, if it was the temple that he was going to make elaborate and extensive, that would be something the Jewish people would be willing to put money into. And so this temple became one of the prime things that Herod decided to beautify. So you remember in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the story of that rebuilt temple. Do you remember how some of the oldest Jewish people who went back as uh, exiles returned? They actually wept. They had seen Solomon's temple overlaid with gold. Now they see this simple stone structure. They see the foundation laid, not looking, not looking good at all. Looks kind of like a church in Linwood right now. They were not impressed. They wept. 
But Herod comes along and he beautifies the temple. So now we see ivory, we see gold in that building. And then he builds this huge structure around the temple, the, the courts of the temple that we read about in the Bible. And then around that, this huge square all the way around the outside was uh, another courtyard where anybody was welcome to come. In fact, this literally became a tourist attraction and people would buy and sell and there probably were souvenirs and this was a place that even Gentiles could go. This whole complex, I know it doesn't maybe look at from the picture, I believe this picture is taken from a model. This entire complex that Herod built was 36 acres. There was room for the church to gather. Even though on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved, and it says in our passage, every, uh, the Lord was adding daily to the church. More and more people were being saved, but this is why they met in the temple courts. Why? Because there was room. Because Jews and Gentiles could meet in these large outer courts. And so they did. There was a kind of gathering that was a large gathering where all of God's people came together. And I want us to consider for a few moments why. Why is it important that the church gathers in this large way? Here's the first reason. It is crucial for us to identify with God's people. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is why we do baptism. Because in baptism, we are publicly declaring our initiation into this community of God's people. It's not meant to be a secret. That's why it's so interesting in the Gospel of John after Jesus died and Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea came to get the body of Jesus. John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea had been a secret disciple. But when Jesus died, he publicly came and asked Pilate for the body. And in plain view of everyone, he and Nicodemus took this body of Jesus down. Remember, his own disciples were too afraid to do that. They weren't going to associate him in that scary moment. But Joseph and Nicodemus came and threw their lot in with Jesus by taking his body down and burying it. God's intention in salvation is for us to identify with his people. There's no such thing as secret salvation. It is meant to be known. It is meant to be public. And we are meant to identify with God's people. This is what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. So what does gathering do? Gathering associates us and identifies us with God's people. When we come into a room like this, into a building that has a cross on it, where people preach the word of God and where we proclaim the name of Jesus and declare the good news of salvation, you are saying, I'm with these people. In fact, notice what John says in 1 John chapter 2 on the opposite. He says, they went out from us. He's describing people who had associated with the Christian faith and with believers. He says, they went out, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Do you hear what John is saying here? To be a person who says, I'm a Christian, but refuses to associate with the people of God, or to gather with the people of God, John is saying, what you're doing is you're you're suggesting that you're not actually truly a believer. 
Now, we all know it's possible to be a believer and to go through those times of coldness where we pull away from God's people and, and the things of God. Doesn't mean you're not a believer, but what John is saying is generally this is a characteristic of someone who isn't truly saved. They hit a wall and they pull away from God's people and they abandon that community of God's people. Why do we gather large? Number one, to identify with God's people. And number two, to hear the word of God preached. In Acts 2, we find that the believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And where did they get the apostles' teaching? I bet you primarily they got it when they gathered in the temple courts. We know that the apostles went into the temple courts. The early chapters of, of Acts uh, describe Peter and John going into the temple courts and meeting this, uh, this lame man. And he, uh, they, they, by God's grace, he's healed and he leaps up and he, he praises God. So that was their practice to go into the temple courts. And I suspect in these large gatherings, the apostles were teaching God's word to the believers. They were catechizing them. They were educating them in the word of God. They were helping Jewish believers understand the flow of the Old Testament and how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of that. They were helping believers understand what God's will was for them and how they were to live in the world. It was the preaching of God's word. We believe that God's, the preaching of God's word is still crucial and still powerful. But of course, to be uh, crucial and powerful, it has to be a continuation of what this authentic church did. They preached the word of God. They, preached, they taught the apostles' doctrine. Do we come on Sundays with an anticipation of hearing from God? Not from a pastor, not from a preacher, but literally to hear from the, the voice of God himself. Let me give you a definition for what true preaching is. By God's grace, may this be the preaching we have here. Preaching is the voice of God, proclaimed through a servant of God, who is teaching the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, demonstrating the redemption of God in submission to God. That is what preaching ought to be. By God's grace, I want this to be more true of me and, and all of us who preach here at Wallenstein. So that when we come and gather large on Sunday mornings, we anticipate hearing from God himself. This is why we want to be careful that we are preaching God's word, not human philosophies, not somebody's ideas or pet theologies, but we want to be preaching the word of God because when we honor God's word, we hear his voice. Notice it's proclaimed through a servant. Why would someone like me or anyone who preaches have this incredible privilege of standing for God in this gap between God and his people. It is a privilege that should humble us and frighten uh, those of us who do this. It's kind of like when God sent Jesus into the world. We call that the incarnation. And God became flesh. In Jesus, God became flesh. And now we could see God in a human life, in a human body. And I believe preaching is kind of like that. Preaching is God's word coming through a human instrument, ideally one who's already been crushed by the power of God's word, one who's already been pierced by the sword of God's word. That's what God desires to do. 
This person who stands before a church to preach knows the challenges that the congregation is facing. That's why when I'm speaking God's word to you, I'm not, I'm not going to be afraid to talk about COVID because that's the world we're living in right now. And I'm experiencing some of the same things you are, and I know some of the pains and the struggles that some of you are going through, and I'm going through some of those things myself, and so the word of God comes through this human instrument, kind of like an incarnation. We teach the word of God by the spirit of God, and all through that we're demonstrating the good news of the gospel, the redemption of Jesus. And of course, we do this in submission to God. The preacher comes and stands before you with fear and trembling, with humility, with a recognition that unless the Lord speaks, there's no value in what's happening in this moment. And all of us come with submission, with fear and trembling, that in these moments, we will hear from God. That's what preaching is, and that's why we gather large. So in that large group, we can hear the word of God preached. Number three, gathering large. Why do we gather large? So that we can participate in praise. If we would have read on in those verses uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2 that talk about how we're the people of God, it says that we are to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our job. And it's way better to do that as a church than simply as an individual. We are meant to do this. Notice what it says in Colossians 3.16. Let the message of Christ dwell, notice, among you. The assumption here is that this is an activity that's happening among God's people as the church. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. All right, so let's just take a a straw poll here. Uh, would you prefer to be part of a church gathering that includes worship, singing, where people are kind of mumbling the words or not singing at all, and there's no volume and there's no energy, versus would you like to be part of a church gathering where everyone together is enthusiastically raising their voices and praising God? Uh, one or two, who votes for one? Nobody? So we prefer the, the latter. In fact, I, I think we even prefer when the person behind us can't sing, but they sing anyway. Because when we see a person who's enthusiastically praising God in the midst of the community, we are encouraging each other. You look at the person beside you, wow, they're really singing today. I could hear Sylvia singing today. And my sense is that that's not just coming from her mouth, it's coming from her heart because she loves the Lord. And we hear this sound in this room, and you know what it is, actually. It is a small, very small, glimpse of heaven. Because when you read in Revelation and you read about heaven, the descriptions we're given of, are of throngs of people loudly raising their voices to God in praise. You will not be able to hold yourself back then. You might now. So this large gathering is our opportunity to do what the people of God do. What do we do? We sing the praises of God. It's an opportunity for us to do that so that we're encouraging the people around us. And when we experience that, we are deeply encouraged in our own souls. And we are encouraging the people around us. And imagine the glory 
that, that is given to God, that shines upward to God. We are honoring Him. We are worshiping Him. We are demonstrating His value. So we gather large. Next, we honor Christ in communion when we gather large. This can be done in small group too. It should be done in small groups too. But it's also done in the large gathering. I appreciated what Andreas shared last night. Um, and if you weren't here last night, I'm hoping it's recorded and you can watch that. But Andreas shared the illustration of driving the uh, steering, excuse me, the OM ship. And how he was taught that it wasn't a matter of holding the steering wheel in the middle because the currents and the winds would shift the boat in different directions. And that's what happens in our lives. And I believe that sharing communion together is a powerful tool that God uses to keep our hearts and our minds aligned with Him. Because when we come and share communion together, what are we remembering? We're remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. And so we worship Him and we give thanks to Him and we realize that if it wasn't for Jesus, we'd have nothing. But when we remember communion, we're also remembering our sinfulness. That we needed a Savior who would give His life for us for our own salvation. We would be lost without him. And that humbles me and it reminds me again that apart from Christ, I am nothing. But then it reminds me of my own marching orders because Jesus said, and the word of God says, that we should follow in his steps of suffering. And Jesus said we should take up our cross and follow him. So communion reminds me of what it looks like to lay down my life for someone else. And it brings me back into alignment. One more thing. Gathering large gives us the opportunity to invite seekers to faith. Now, I'm not talking here about becoming what some would call a seeker-sensitive church where everything we do is, is just for unbelievers and we're just trying to uh, give a, a light message that might introduce people to the good news. I'm not talking about that. I actually don't believe that that's what's most helpful. I have seen in my experience that when someone who doesn't know Jesus comes into a church where the word of God is preached and the voice of God is heard and the people of God enthusiastically raise their voice in worship and where as they, as they observe the relationships that are happening and they see a deep love expressed among the community, I have seen people who don't understand anything about any of it be deeply impacted to the point where now they want to know more about what is going on here with this group of people. That is what I believe. In fact, that's what we find in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul is talking here about um, uh, this difficulty in the Corinthian church where some people were speaking in tongues or other languages and, and he's teaching them that uh, people need to understand what is being said. So if someone's speaking in tongues, somebody better interpret. But what he says is the best gift or the best practice in your church is to prophesy, which is to declare the truth of God. Notice what he says. If an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. This is what I long for when I come to church on Sundays. And this is my prayer, when, whether I preach or not, or wherever I gather with God's people, is God, would you show up? Would your voice be heard? Would your presence be known today 
in the gathering of your people. And when it is, even someone who doesn't know Jesus who comes in among us will be impacted. The word of God says so. My hope would be that this could be a church where we invite people. We're not going to orient our whole service around people who don't know Jesus. We're going to keep doing what we do, but we can invite people. And my hope, as I preach and others preach the Word of God, is that when there's moments of clarity where we can explain some aspect of the gospel or uh, some aspect of God and, and how we believe that God exists or how God created the universe, we can insert those things as a way of helping people who've never heard and never understood. So we gather large. We commit ourselves to gathering large as the people of God. But then we gather small. And in Acts 2, we see this in that first authentic church because it says they broke bread from house to house. They did it gladly. This was hospitality. This was Christian relationship on a smaller level. And so I want to emphasize this as well. Gathering small. Now I've described, I hope with uh, uh, with clarity and I hope that your own heart is stirred to the, the joy and the excitement of gathering large but, but let's be honest there's things about the Christian life that just can't and, and certainly don't happen on Sunday mornings in a church this large it's hard for us to develop deep relationships with people can happen and we should pursue those things but it's hard for those to happen here it's hard for us to come to church on Sunday morning and establish accountability with someone or maybe confess sin. We don't tend to do that in this large group gathering. So there's aspects of the Christian life, many aspects, which require deep relationships that we may or may not find here. And so we gather small. Why do we gather small? First of all, so that we can know and be known. The whole thing is about relationship. God is a relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, fully knowing each other. Fully known by each other. And they created humanity in His image so that we could know God and so that we could know one another. And God created marriage so that a husband and wife could know and be fully known. And then when it comes to the church, God uses the same kind of language He uses for marriage. Where a husband and wife are meant to be one. And the same language is used for the people of God. Jesus praying in John 17, Father, make them one. Just like we are one. Christian growth happens as we develop these deep, meaningful relationships with one another. When we base them on Christ and when, when they are spiritual relationships, when we talk about the things of God, when we confess sin to one another, when we pray with and for each other, these are the kinds of relationships <clears throat> that produce transformation in our lives. So we gather small. Secondly, we, in these smaller groups, we tend to understand and apply the Word of God. We hear the Word preached in the large gathering, but in the small gathering, we have the opportunity to sharpen each other with God's Word and to help each other understand and to ask questions, and especially to challenge each other with how do we live this out? How do we apply these truths that we've heard? Wayne shared this morning that gathering small gives us the opportunity to care for one another. We can't pro provide deep 
relational care for everybody in this church, but we can for a few. And so uh, small groups and gathering small gives us the opportunity to do this, caring for one another, someone who's in need. By the way, folks, the danger in a large church is that we assume someone else will do it. And here's the thing, if God places someone on your heart, someone in your church community who's struggling or who's in need or who has a, has a problem and God puts that person on your heart, we don't shrug and say someone else can take care. Let Wayne take care of it. We engage. It's our job as believers to care for one another. By the way, all of this here, these are the one another commands that fill the New Testament. There's countless one another commands. And so many of the commands of God are commands about how we treat and behave and care for one another. So gathering small gives us the opportunity to do that. Gathering small gives us the opportunity to pray together. We're going to pray together when we gather large and we can have very meaningful prayers. But when we gather small, we can pray in an even more intimate setting. And uh, we, can, we can all pray together. Various people can pray. We can raise our voices together. We can share intimate prayer requests that we might not share in this larger group gathering. And we can pour out our hearts for one another. Finally, we can encourage transformation. Here's the problem. If we think that Christianity is just me and Jesus, we are missing out on the primary tool that God wants to use to refine you and to transform you. And what is that? Other believers. He's going to use other believers. He's going to use their spiritual gifts to minister to you. He's going to use their words of encouragement and cheering you on to minister to you. He's going to use their words of rebuke and exhortation to challenge you onward in your Christian faith. If you think, I'm going to grow and be transformed apart from God's church, then you don't understand the way God does it. He does it through his people. So last night, and again, if you weren't here last night, uh, Andreas introduced this discipleship path. This is something that we have developed uh, simply as a visual tool to help and, and remind us of what it means to be a Christian. Starting from left to right, everybody is on a spiritual journey. Many people, most people in our world are separated from God and from Christ. Most of them don't even realize it and don't seem to care. But some, by the work of the Spirit, have begun to seek and search after spiritual things. They might even be examining Christianity and the gospel and Jesus. And of course, our longing is for everyone to come to the cross of salvation and receive through repentance and faith the gift of salvation. That's our longing for everyone here. I don't assume for a moment that everyone in this room is saved. I, I don't assume that. I, I know that's probably not even possible. There are people in all churches who have sat in churches for years and heard the preaching of the word and never truly personalized it and responded in repentance and faith. This is the crucial point on the journey. We have to come to the cross and receive salvation in Christ alone. Once we've done that, we begin this journey of growth. We start off, we get established in our faith, we get baptized, we share our testimony, and then we're growing as we serve the Lord and as we engage in church life, as people minister to us, we grow and we're strengthened. And the ultimate goal, of course, 
is that we would become like Jesus. We are following him. That's the direction of the discipleship path. We're following Jesus. And the goal is that we would be like him. Transformation. This is a simple tool to help us in two ways. Number one, we do not want to be a church of mere attendance. Where we come to church on Sundays, kind of like this religious duty or exercise that we've always done, and we hear the word and we sing some songs and we go home and nothing changes week by week. That is not God's intention for the church. His intention is that we would be transformed. But we also don't want to be a church that forgets about the people on the left side of the journey, people who are still in the dark. We want to be a church that acknowledges that these people are there and God, use us to shine the light of the gospel into their hearts and minds. Help us to be the people who create that questioning, that, that sense of searching and longing. And when we have people around us who begin to seek after Jesus and inquire about the Bible, may God make us and help us to be the people who answer their questions and invite them into faith. This is transformation. Our great desire is that we would gather large as a church. And our desire is that many of us, all of us, would hear the invitation to gather small. So we've been emphasizing our small groups, and there's still very much an opportunity for you to sign up. Now let me say, I know for some of you, you are doing small church or gathering small in other ways. Small group is not the only way that you can do that. Some people are gathering small in a ministry team or maybe in a, in a worship team, and, and it's possible to practice those small church uh, practices that we've seen in those ministry teams. But for many of you, a small group could be something that God would use for your transformation. I know for many of you, it's a scary thing. We have done training with a number of couples and individuals to help lead these small groups. Uh, our heart is that many of you would see the value of this, uh, that this could be something that, that you would participate in that God would use for your growth. So I want to challenge you today. If you haven't signed up to be part of a small group, um, I want to challenge you to consider, prayerfully consider doing that. Give it a try. Uh, I trust that you will be encouraged. God's word says this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. There are some people, and COVID has created this dynamic and this reality, who have removed themselves from the congregation and the community of God's people for different reasons. And some people feel that it's okay. It's me and Jesus. I can watch YouTube sermons. I can, I can pray and read my Bible here at home. But the reality is, according to God's word, that if we want the heat of the Spirit of God to be at work in us, it requires that we gather and identify praise God with his people. Just like to take a, an ember, a log, off of this fire and to set it aside, we all know what would happen within an hour. It's smoldering, it's cooling off. You cannot tell me, nobody can tell me, 
that their passion for Christ and their transformation to Christ was enhanced by separating themselves from the people of God. It's not possible. If we want to grow and be transformed and be on fire for the things of the Lord, we need the people of God. And by the way, the people of God need you. Because the heat of the fire isn't just created by the other embers. Your heat is meant to be part of what grows the people of God in this church. It's not just about what you get or don't get. It's about what you give or don't give. It's all of us together, and this is the beauty of what happened yesterday. All of us together joining in the work of God with the people of God. This creates spiritual heat, and don't we need this? We need this desperately. May God make this true of you and of I. May God make this a church of spiritual heat for his glory. We're going to sing one final song, and then I'll come again and pray. So how is the Holy Spirit speaking to you this morning? Maybe we've been one of those people that sits on the sidelines and finds fault with everything that's going on in the church. That's not God's will for us. He doesn't invite us into a perfect church. He invites us into a church of people just like us who need to be transformed. Have we... Have we been thankful for the people of God? Do we love them? Are we excited to be part of this community and to make a difference? This is God's will for us. May it be true of us. Maybe there's something that needs to be repented of this morning. Maybe there's some change of heart that needs to happen. Maybe we just simply need to rejoice and say, thank you, God, that I get to be part of your church. Use me. God, we thank you for your word clarity that we find there. Thank you for your wisdom in establishing the church of Jesus Christ, for calling us out and bringing us in. Help us, Lord, to engage in your bride, in your body, in your church. Help us to see how much we need each other. Help us to see, Lord, that you have a part for us to play. Lord, we never want to be a church that's simply focused on ourselves, but as you strengthen us and build our joy and build our passion, Lord, you send us back out to find others who desperately need the love and the compassion, the message that this community bears. So would you make us those people, Lord? Would you do a work in us? Would you transform us? Make us more like Jesus, we pray. And may it be true in the days of this coming week. May we be faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God be with you.